Right, we're just a few weeks away from our first ever live edition of the Race F1 podcast on February 12th. So far, we've got a great venue, King's Place in London, as part of Pod Live. We've got me to host, Scott Mitchell Malm to give lengthy answers, and a very special guest in Ted Kravitz. So, Ted, we've got to work out what we're going to talk about. What's there to look forward to in 2023 that we can get into in the live show, do you think? Let me start by telling you a story about Murray Walker. There you go. Good start. Um, he always used to say at the beginning of a season, you know, Formula One has an amazing ability of reinventing itself year by year. And I used to think it's a funny thing to say, but you know, the more I think about it, the more he's right. And even though we don't have new cars this year, right, slightly different with the race, bright height, blah, blah, new tyres, we do have so many other new things that are worth talking about. We've got new drivers, we've got rookies, it's more than one, a couple of rookies, and we've got new team bosses. That's what I'm all also looking forward to, to seeing how that's all going to work. And then, of course, we've got the small matter of the World Championship. Will we be, at the end of 2023, talking about Max Verstappen, a three-time world champion? There's loads of stuff to look forward to this season. That's going to fill about 40 minutes of our 75 minutes. Scott, can your song and dance routine fill the rest? Um, it probably could if you would um, if you would unshackle me and just let me you know, have, have full uh, creative license on it. Part of it for me that I think we can get into really nicely is the subject of rivalries, old and new, because I would like to think we're going to see some familiar fights in 2023, but we're also going to see some new ones as well. I'm really optimistic about that. So I think that's a good subject for us to get into. And obviously it won't just be us. Maybe we'll uh, have a few interesting insights from our audience as well. Well, this is great. The running order is coming together very, very well. I think we've got to have some kind of audience interaction. We'll definitely have a few questions. We'll have a few bits of feedback from the audience. Ted, do you know anyone who's handy with a microphone and who's good at doing a bit of broadcasting moving around? Because we could do with someone who could go out among the people. Well, what are we? February the 12th. Is it going to be warm enough for shorts? Yes, of course it'll be warm enough for shorts. I'll bring my pink shirt and my shorts on and I'll get down there with a the microphone. And of course, I think we should also hang around a bit at the end, say hello to a few people. Will there be the chance, Ted, to give a few autographs? Definitely. Does anyone actually ask for autographs anymore? But um, yeah, no, we can, uh, we can go and meet everybody and say hello. Yeah, it's going to be great. All part of Sport Pod Live, a live podcast festival. We're there on February the 12th. That's a Sunday. Nice early afternoon slot. So if you're an F1 fan, it's just going to be a great event to come to. Hopefully we've got so much to talk about. We're going to struggle to fit it all in. So to get your tickets, head to sportspodcastgroup.com forward slash pod dash live. That's sportspodcastgroup.com forward slash pod dash live. Get your tickets and we will see you there. The Athletic. Mika Hakkinen's final season in F1 wasn't a particularly memorable one, but in the penultimate race of his career at Indianapolis, he showed he still had one final flourish in him to claim his 20th and last victory. It came against the backdrop of Hakkinen still having to keep up appearances that he was only going on sabbatical for 2002 rather than retiring and his victory gave everybody in F1 something to smile about and hopefully that went down well with the American fans as well who were still reeling from the 9-11 attacks in New York just a few weeks earlier. While Hakkinen still had one race to go after this, one man who definitely was retiring here was the great Murray Walker, who chose the 2001 United States Grand Prix as his final live F1 commentary on TV. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, to look back at everything going on in F1 towards the end of 2001 are Ed Straw and Mark Hughes, who was there that weekend at Indy. So Mark, We'll come to you first. When you think back to being at Indianapolis that weekend, what's the first thing that comes to mind? 
I was standing on the balcony of the media centre looking out across the start-finish straight and to the grandstands and adjacent to each other were the, seemed like the full contingent of Colombian fans in one part and the Brazilian fans in the other and um, it had attracted enormous numbers of, of, of each and uh, they were chanting but they were sort of taking it in turns where they were sort of sing-song, they were almost singing at each other um, <laughs> it was it was a, a amazing spectacle. It wasn't the normal sort of thing that you you, you saw. It was just, just you suddenly saw this um, huge Latin following, and uh, it was obviously building um, substantially with uh, Montoya's form in his first first year in Formula One. Yeah, the TV coverage does quite a good job of finding those Montoya fans uh, during the first half of the race. Uh, Ed, what stands out for you? Yeah, it's two things really. Obviously, this was. I think the penultimate race before I started my professional journalistic career, so I was still on the outside looking in. But it was very much a combination of of the Murray Walker farewell, and I remember a, a slightly ill-advised ITVF1 segment before the race where they had Murray interviewing himself, which I don't think in, entirely worked, but it was a nice uh, thought. And also just that, that weird shadow of 9-11. It, it's strange, really, because almost the US Grand Prix, when you sort of first think of it you think oh yeah that was the first race after 9-11 for F1 but of course it wasn't because they'd already been monitored but because it was in the USA it had that extra charge to it and it was uh yeah a very very strange time. Before we get going let's hear some memories from our audience. Uh, James Wickenden responded to my post on Twitter saying Montoya's overtake on Schumacher was the standout moment we will talk about that. Dan Mason was one of many of you to recall that this was Murray Walker's final live TV commentary, along with Andy Campbell, David Handy, John Hainan and Chris. Lots of people, of course, remember this for being Mick Hackenden's final win. I particularly enjoyed Real Simon Says, who said, I still don't understand how Mick won that race. So hopefully we can help there. Diego Ospina and Brian Glennon also picked that. Uh, and Piston Rod F1 was one of many of you to suggest this was Hackenden's most recent win, not his final win, as he still could come back from his sabbatical. Quite a few of you mentioned Jack Villeneuve's awful qualifying and the fact he was outqualified by the brilliance of Fernando Alonso in a Minardi, but none of you are getting name checked. Shane Nye and Electro Monica mentioned John Lacey making his 200th start. Uh, there were some memories uh, of, of this race taking place in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks in New York, as we mentioned. That was mentioned by Flat Spotted, Ben on Two Wheels, uh, Alex Dowling, and also by Bill Adkins and Nicholas Harbour, who were both at Indianapolis that weekend. A bunch of you mentioned Mick Hackenden carrying a black bag after the race, which I've never seen, but so many of you said it uh, and are curious about what was in the bag. That it was clearly a thing. Um, thanks to Brendan, Mr. Liam and Matt for uh, being some of those to suggest that. Uh, and let's finish on one that's just as bizarre. Adrian King was another of our listeners who was there. And Adrian's memory was standing next to Eddie Cheever in the urinals, which on Twitter has prompted a reply from Eddie Cheever. And they've now had a chat and are asking how each other are. And uh, if you're interested, uh, Eddie tells us he's very well. So brilliant, brilliant offshoot conversation that's taken place. Uh, there. Remember, if you'd like to get early access to ad-free episodes plus bonus content and other benefits, check out the Race Members Club. You can find out more by going to the-race.com and clicking on join the race at the top of the screen or head to the-race.com forward slash members club. If you've not yet picked up any Bring Back V10's merchandise, head over to shop.the-race.com where you can find our range of clothing and other branded products we have on sale. 
And remember to get your questions in for the end of the series when we'll answer anything you want to ask us about F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005. Submit them using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email them to BringBackV10s at the-race.com. So, Indy 2001, that sabbatical we just mentioned for Hacken, and that was the talk of F1 in the gap between the Italian and US Grand Prix. It had been announced at Monza that Hakkinen was taking a year out and Kimi Raikkonen was replacing him. But as more days passed, there was talk that Hakkinen wasn't going to come back. Once he got to Indy, Hakkinen avoided answering questions directly on if this was a fancy way to dress up retirement, saying, I'm going to take it easy for one year, see what it feels like and have all the doors open. But after a few months, I could start feeling that I want to come back. Hakkinen said he'd been waiting a long time to tell everyone his decision and he felt relaxed now the news was out. And McLaren boss Ron Dennis, who was the man adamant Hakkinen was not retiring, said the decision was taken in May, but McLaren had waited until September to announce it because they wanted to get a replacement lined up first. Hakkinen has of course admitted since that he did want to retire and when he told Dennis that, it was Ron who came up with the idea to call it a sabbatical in case Mika wanted to change his mind. Back in 2001, though, at Indianapolis, Hakkinen said, My whole life was geared to one objective, how I sleep, how I eat, how I train, what I say. Then you start getting to the time where you're getting tired and you cannot 100% focus anymore. Now, Ed, you recently spoke to Mika about this decision. Do you think there was ever any chance he might decide after a few months off that he would want to come back in 2003? I think realistically, the chances were almost zero. Micah very much went into this thinking it was his retirement. He'd not even pushed for the safety net of the sabbatical. That was very much Ron Dennis that had uh, had suggested that and Micah had gone along with it. I guess the fact Micah was 33, there was always the possibility he might have a few months off and then think, oh, actually, I'm a little bit bored with this. Uh, That has rebuilt my energy, but he realistically completely understood that he didn't have it in him to sustain the level he needed to be at for, to fight for world championships. He couldn't do that in 2001, which is why that campaign was patchy. This was only his second. Uh, he only won two races that season, which wasn't really uh, up, up to, to scratch. You can argue there's a chicken and egg element, as in maybe he had it in mind to stop, and that's what led to the edge being kind of lost. But he's spoken in the past about how difficult it was to kind of pick himself up after winning the first championship and the second championship. So there were already the signs there and kind of each time he'd had to really dig deep to to lift himself. And it's almost like it got harder every time. And I think that cumulative effect meant he really recognised it. And you have to remember that he'd had really intense title fights with mostly Schumacher, the one with Irvine as well. So he'd come off the back of three really hard, intense years. And I think it's often underestimated. It's certainly something I've realised while covering F1. These fights take an enormous amount out of people. Being at that level every day, as Mika said, that training, the focus, the intensity, everything is so, so, so draining. And Hackett, into his credit, recognised that he didn't have anything left in the tank. And he absolutely went into this, not thinking of it as a sabbatical, entirely thinking of it as as retirement. Now the news on Hakkinen's future was official, he of course started doing the rounds with uh, interviews about winding down, or should I say pausing his F1 career. 
And in an interview with German magazine Automotor and Sport, uh, Hakkinen gently speculated that his great rival Michael Schumacher could be not too far behind him when it came to calling it a day. Hakkinen said, I see certain signs that lead me to doubt whether he will continue driving for a long time. He has been racing for a long time. He has children. He has had his success. He has had his accidents. It doesn't matter how much you love the sport. Michael too will ask himself sooner or later, how long is this to go on for? Uh, I find it difficult to judge whether he has the same reasons for a certain fatigue as I have. Did he have to struggle to get his own way like I did? And did the full support of his team make his life easier? Schumacher faced a lot of speculation over his future after it emerged uh, that he had doubts about racing at Monza in the wake of the 9-11 attacks in New York. And he gave a punchy response to the general speculation. This was not Hakkinen's comments directly. When he spoke to Italian newspaper Gazzetta dello Sport, Schumacher said, There are too many people speaking about me and about that famous tiredness. I have spoken clearly about it, yet every so often there's someone who wakes up and decides to turn his thoughts to me. Please don't bother me about it. I am looking to the future and I will continue racing in Formula One because it still gives me great pleasure. Mark, you were in the paddock. You were, you were seeing Michael up close. Did you detect any signs around this time that he might be considering his future? Not really, no. Um, he seemed to be on a completely different tra trajectory to Mika. Um, his um, talk always seemed to be about the, the next project and the future and um, how, you know, how they were still um, improving the team, this blockbuster team, and I think he was still very much... Um, feeling that there was a hell of a lot more to come. Uh, the, 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 he was in this fantastic situation that had taken several years to pull together and um, now he was um, enjoying the fruits of it. I think he was very much up for um, hanging around to, to really reap the full rewards and that, that's always the impression I got from him at that time. That also tells you what sets apart people like Schumacher. Just talked about the fact Hakkinen couldn't lift himself, but there's a few extraordinary drivers who seem to have the ability to just keep going. Winning is never enough. They've got to win again, 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 again. And Schumacher's one of those. Lewis Hamilton more recently is another one. That doesn't mean Hakkinen was in any way a, a failure, but for different people, there's different motivations. And for some, winning it once or twice is enough. But for Schumacher, I think probably winning it seven times wasn't even enough for him. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Interesting that Mika mentioned the, the support of the team thing as if to suggest that... Uh... Schumacher might have had it easier for that. Uh, interested to get David Coulthard's view on that. We'll come back to F1 and 911 though, later on. But elsewhere on the F1 grid at the time, BAR boss Craig Pollock was giving Honda a kick up the backside to get on terms with the best engines in F1. BAR had claimed its first podiums during 2001 with two third places for Jacques Villeneuve. But in terms of pace, it didn't seem to be getting any closer to the front. Pollock wanted to see a step from Honda for 2002, saying, I think the potential to overtake BMW or Ferrari isn't in this year's engine. They know they have to step up tremendously next year. They know that if they are expecting us to win a championship in the next X number of years, then we have to have better drivers, better tyres, and it means they have to have the best engine. So Mark, this was Honda's second season back as a full works engine supplier in F1, do you think they were getting a, a reality check, perhaps, about how hard it was going to be to produce a class-leading engine in this era when F1 was absolutely flooded with manufacturers? Yes, and also I think the um, the previous Honda 
um, program really went, you know, when they were, they were with McLaren, which was, you know, the absolute top team at that time. And they weren't at, at that level with the team yet either. And I think also it had become a little bit more sophisticated in that it was no longer about just providing the all-out gruntiest, most powerful engine, which Honda was still capable of doing, but uh, it was also very much about combining that with a very low-weight engine and uh, 100-kilo V10s were sort of very much a, th- a thing, a target for everyone, um, which is incredible, really. A 3-litre V10 weighing just 100 kilos, and subsequently people got well below that. And that was where Honda was struggling. It could, um, at that time, it, it could make a it could make an engine more powerful than anyone else, but it would it couldn't do that. Well, but but have a light engine as well, and it it seemed to in its programs it seemed to um, sort of bounce back between the two. When it made a light engine, it was unreliable, not particularly powerful. When they made a powerful engine, it was too heavy, and they didn't seem to have fully sort of honed in on what the actual um, f- demands were of of Formula One by this time. I think this is maybe the first sign of a trend that ran until 2021 when they finally won a championship again, that everything Honda has done in F1 since the McLaren era has been benchmarked against that kind of Senna Prost dominance. But Pollock was by no means pointing the finger purely at Honda for BAR's stalled progress. He described 2001 as a slap in the face for BAR, adding, we probably merited it because we really seriously thought that we had put in so much effort over the winter that it would be a lot easier than it has been. Pollock added that the team had stood still because its rate of development was at the same as everyone else's, and he said BAR needed to double its rate of development to start climbing up the order. Lead driver Jacques Villeneuve had a thing or two to say about this as well in an interview with Autosport magazine. He said now BAR was established in the midfield, the danger was that people become comfortable with being contenders for points and don't push on to reach the next next level. So his hope was that people weren't happy with the team's current level. Ed, given the roller coaster journey BAR had been on in its short existence up to this point, is it surprising to hear Pollock say that they were so confident they'd cracked it ahead of 2001? The team had only done two seasons by that point. You're not especially surprised. If you go back to the start of BAR, it's clear the challenge of F1 was underestimated. We talked about that in the season four episode of Bring Back V10s about its debut season in 99. You can see why the progress that was being made maybe tricked them into into thinking that they were on a dramatic upward curve. But you have to remember this was at a time when Ferrari in particular was just driving up the level of what was needed to be a top F1 team. All the teams were within their resources getting better and BAR still had a long way to go. And it probably reflects the fact they saw 99 and that difficult start as more of a bump in the road and then onto the kind of normal trajectory. Whereas actually they needed to take the wake-up calls more seriously. And, of course, 2002, hopefully I'm not giving anything away for anyone who hasn't gone to 2002 yet, wasn't exactly a glorious season for BAR either. That said, there was stuff going on in the background with the way that team was pulling itself together to get to a good level. And certainly by 2004, we know how strong they became. So it's kind of this combination of things are clearly being put in place in the right way, but there's still a lot more of evolution the team still needs to have and probably still underestimation of of what you need to do to thrive in F1. And I do wonder if being purely speculative, part of that is because the frame of reference was with Williams where Villeneuve had been successful and perhaps they were almost trying to recreate a Williams type team at a point where Williams was just starting to become a little bit 
decrepit and not keep up with people uh, as well. But yeah, it's a surprise for them to think that 2001 was going to be easier because it's never easier in, in F1. It's always just as difficult. You just might do a little bit better or a little bit worse. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. At Indianapolis, John Alacy became only the fifth man to reach 200 starts in F1. Alacy had been racing since his debut mid-season in 1989 with Tyrrell, and it was fitting that he was making his 200th start driving for Jordan, as Eddie Jordan had helped get him into F1 all those years ago. Alacy said, The last 12 years have gone so quickly, but I feel an incredible sense of achievement to have made it to my 200th Grand Prix. There are so many things that have happened over this time, making it impossible to sum up my Formula 1 memories in just a few words. A book wouldn't be enough. Jean, you should definitely write that book. Uh, he went on to say, being back with Jordan now is almost a dream come true. Eddie launched me into Formula One by arranging my drive with Tyrrell in 1989. And since then, I have driven for all the teams I wanted to drive for. Except for Williams. Uh, Ed, Lacey mentioned there the, the sense of achievement of reaching 200 races. Was that a bigger deal back then than perhaps it is now? Yeah, well, there's 21 drivers who've hit 200, and someone did it in Abu Dhabi, the last Grand Prix that was held. Can anyone remember who that was? No, blank stares. It was Valtteri Bottas, and that tells you the fact that almost passed without comment tells you that 200 is now common or garden. I think there's 21 drivers, as I said. So, yeah, Lacey was only the fifth. P.K. de Cesaris, Berger, and Patrese were the others. There's two factors that made it more impressive. One is just a, a basic result of mathematics. Lacey had had roughly 12 and a half seasons, obviously, because he came in during 89 and then missed a few races later in the season. It's it's not precisely that, but that would take you to, these days, 275 to 300 starts. So almost 300 is the, uh, or 200 is the, is the old 300 uh, in, in that regard. But also, Lacey did race at a more dangerous time. Okay, deaths were rare, but injuries weren't unusual. So it was possible to miss races. In fact, Lacey did miss a couple with his neck injury in, in 1994, and there was a lot more churn with drivers, so it was easier almost to fall off the grid. Even though opportunities were more plentiful, the chances to fall off were, were greater as well. So, yeah, Lacey, Lacey did well. 200 today isn't what it once was. Six drivers have gone past 300. Now, Alonso's up at 355 starts, and he's contracted to hit 400, but Alonso's a, a bizarre case as evidenced by the fact that this is a basically a historic race we're talking about. And he was in Indy 2001, remarkably, and, and still going. So yeah, a, a great achievement for Alacy, although by this point in his career, he was very much trading on the uh, the kind of glowing, dying embers of his early reputation. Yeah, I and mean, that's a subject we're coming to uh, in a few weeks on in this series. So we'll be looking at the uh, the, the rise of Alacy not too far from now. But his future was a subject of speculation at the end of 2001 because Alacy was keen to keep racing with Jordan, but it was rumoured that he'd be losing his seat to Takuma Sato so Jordan could keep Honda happy. Alacy dismissed rumours that he could be on his way to Arrows, saying, for me, it is Jordan or nothing. 
He added, I would like to finish my career by racing for Jordan as I feel I have come full circle. I have no deadline as to when I must stop driving in Formula One and driving with Jordan next year would be good. That's my priority. I'm just waiting to see what Eddie wants to do for next season. The Sato rumours turned out to be true, of course, and when Alacy found out, he decided to retire from F1. He told Motorsport magazine in 2016, I said, if Sato is taking my drive, it means it's better to stop. And I did. Mark, had Alacy reached the end of the road as an F1 driver by this point, or did he have more to give if Jordan had kept him on? He could have operated at a good professional level, but he was never going to reach the heights of his earlier career, I don't think. He, he was... Um very reluctant to embrace the new driver edge technology. Um, he, he sort of opposed it on a, a philosophical level almost and um, was driving with his traction control switched off a lot of the time, even though they could show him quite clearly that you will go three-tenths of a lap faster around Monaco if you switch it on. And he just didn't like it, didn't like how the car felt, and he was prepared to surrender lap time just so he could have the car feeling the way he felt he, he needed to be able to drive. So, you know, you're not, you're not, um, you're not thinking of the future uh, if, 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 you, if that's your attitude. So, no, I, I think um, it had come, the, the, the time had come, and it was about the right time to, to bow out after some incredible achievements. In, in, uh, an amazing natural driver, um, fantastic sort of ability to control a car on a slippery surface, but that doesn't necessarily translate into the ultimate lap times if you don't have the discipline to to use it correctly. He's actually a very useful driver, Alacy, in terms of being totemic of this period of F1, the kind of past 10 years and the evolution, as Mark alluded to there. He wasn't moving with the times. And he started off as this sort of firebrand driver doing these incredible things. And then he became more and more a man out of time, which is why he didn't really fulfil his, his potential in F1. And by the time he fades out, he's... Yeah, he, he's well past uh, the best level, not because of fundamentally what he's doing, but because he hasn't evolved, because Schumacher's taking all the drivers with him effectively, or at least the drivers who are successful in terms of driving up that level. And that makes him this amazing counterpoint to Schumacher. He's almost a control point that runs through the, the decade of Formula One to give you a, a frame of reference for how things were changing. On F1's first visit to Indianapolis in 2000, McLaren and Mick Hakkinen arrived in the lead of the championship by two points. But a year later, here we are in 2001, and McLaren's lead driver was David Coulthard, and he was 50 points behind Schumacher, who'd been crowned champion in the summer. This prompted action at McLaren, with Ron Dennis and Martin Whitmarsh saying significant change was being made in a number of areas. Whitmarsh said, we're not satisfied with any part of the package, but he also warned against McLaren being revolutionary in reaction to the beating he had taken from Ferrari. And he said, a few teams would like to be doing it as badly as we are, but that doesn't console us. Dennis was a little more specific, saying you look at the structures that give birth to a car or an engine. As F1 has grown, some of these structures have not grown with it. We have taken the opportunity of looking at the whole thing in more detail, not just firefighting. We've gone way beyond just the engineering issues and looked at the relationship between Ilmore, Mercedes and McLaren. We intend to be one. We will explain more in the future when it's appropriate. Is it a reaction to this season? No. But has this season been a catalyst for change? Yes. Classic Ron Dennis there. But Ed, looking beyond to Ron speak, was this McLaren just realising how much Ferrari was moving the goalposts in F1? 
I don't know, I want to interrogate the Ron speak because what does a catalyst do? It triggers or accelerates a reaction, doesn't it? So I don't think he's got his uh, his phraseology right there uh, at all. But yeah, coming back to the question, again, it's Ferrari redefining how an F1 team works and McLaren having to react to that and really push things on just the way a team coherent and again coming back to what Mark was saying earlier it's just about everything it's not just about one thing or the other McLaren of course in the past have been part of pushing the breed accelerating Formula One cars I've seen the John Barnard era they set new levels for the integration of car and engine with the tag Porsche engine project but there's always that next step to take and it's strange because 2001 still feels like the glory days of McLaren but since that point, they've only won one championship, which was Hamilton's driver's title in 2008. So already you're seeing those seeds of the of the later decline because they don't quite keep up with this. And it just tells you how fast absolutely everything was changing that a team like McLaren, that on paper at the time, you'd say everything is right there. They've got this you know, amazing facilities and investing in the right places. They've got Adrian Newey. Adrian Newey. They, they really pioneered driver and loop simulation technology as well. So they seem to be cutting edge, but actually they were they were falling off that, that peak. Only very slightly at this point, but you can see this is just where that momentum is very slowly starting to build, even though it would be a decade or so before they, they really started to, to slide down the order. This race weekend took place just over a fortnight after the September 11th terrorist attacks in America that we've mentioned a couple of times already. So this was the first major international event to take place on US soil. In public, the drivers and teams were unanimous in their belief that this race had to go ahead as a show of support towards America. Juan Pablo Montoya said you can't stop life in response to terrorism and it was good to put on the race to take people's minds off the tragedy for a brief moment and to give them something to cheer about. Ferrari boss John Todd admitted our hearts and minds are not totally concentrated on our work but he said it was important to demonstrate as much as we can that we support the American people in such a difficult and painful moment. Mick Hakkinen said years later that he felt proud of F1 for deciding to go ahead with the race. And Jano Trulli said, we can't stop, otherwise people which attack the USA will have won the battle. Indianapolis boss Tony George said he'd changed his mind multiple times about what was the right thing to do, but he felt it was right to get back to carrying on with our lives. And he also said ticket sales had increased post-September 11th. Mark, as well as all the drivers and teams, you obviously had to make a decision on if you were comfortable or ready to fly to the US this soon after 9-11. Did you have any doubts or concerns? I had concerns, but not doubts. I, was, I wasn't I was ever not going to go. Um, if the race was on, I was going to be there. But yeah, I mean, when you got, it was very much still in the air. And when you got there, it was very much... Um, a concern of people when you when you looked at the um, you stood in the paddock and, and you thought well if somebody wanted to um, fly a plane into into this major event where would they hit and the, the highest point was the, um, the the media center and the the timing tower next to it so you know you you, you did feel a bit little bit vulnerable in that sense but um, we were told there were fighter jets on standby at um, nearby Yusuf base uh, whether they were or not I don't know but. Um, it, it was very much a, a talking point in the air, and yeah, obviously you couldn't dismiss it. Um, but uh, no, it, it didn't. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know of anybody that didn't come uh, as a result of it. 
And the man at the centre of the most speculation about whether he would attend uh, was Michael Schumacher, as there were multiple reports suggesting he was considering not racing at Indianapolis. Schumacher said on his arrival that he'd never had any doubts about racing, but he added that Ferrari had given him the option to skip the race, as they had done with the Italian Grand Prix, which took place days after the attacks. Schumacher said he felt kind of obliged to race at Monza for the Ferrari-adoring Italian public. And he said with the Indianapolis race, naturally, like everyone, I wanted to see if anything would happen after the attacks in the USA. If war would have started, none of us would have liked to come here and drive a race car. But as I said, in principle, I always wanted to race there. Ed, looking at Monza and Indy, we can combine them if you like. The fact that Ferrari gave Michael the option to miss these races, would it have been understandable if he had decided to skip either of them uh, in the wake of 9-11? Well, ultimately, it's a personal decision. So I guess you'd have to understand and, and accept that. But at the same time, as he said, ahead of the race, uh, and indeed, life does have to go on. And the impact of 9-11 was profound, and it was still very keenly felt at this point. But it was what, two and a half weeks before, something like that. That's not to minimise it, but you do have to to crack on. And yeah, American sports had started to, to get going. It's generally said that the United States Grand Prix was the first big international sporting event in the US that, that happened, but also Carter had raced since a couple of times. They raced in, in Germany and then uh, Rockingham uh, in the UK the, the week before. But Schumacher was very much the focal point. He was a huge sporting star at this stage. And he became the person that everyone looked to to see the guidance from F1 as well. So I expect that added some extra pressure. But certainly, once you've decided to do Monza, you've clearly got to do the US GP, haven't you? Because it doesn't make sense not to. And I think the only reason not to do the US race would have been if there was some overwhelming security concern, which obviously uh, there, there wasn't in the end. But I think the fact that this was being talked about and considered and that perhaps Schumacher might not have done Monza had it not been the Italian Grand Prix given the impact. It's just a reminder of how profound the effect of, of 9-11 was at, at this time. And it's um, it's easy to forget kind of with distance, you know, it's over 20 years ago now, but when you sort of think back to all these and look back through what people were saying, it was just felt in absolutely everything and race day as well, constantly being talked about and they were talking about security measures, etc. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'd have done exactly the same thing as, as Mark has done and not really considered not going or anything because life goes on and the event's happening, you crack on with it and you, you, you keep doing what you're doing. As we mentioned earlier, this was F1's second appearance on the Indianapolis road course and the drivers didn't have many nice things to say about the layout. They all accepted that the long flat out final corner and long straight created a good overtaking opportunity as we would see in the race. But they didn't like much else about it. Uh, Jacques Villeneuve said the circuit was very Mickey Mouse, adding, there's no corner where your heartbeat goes up. It's more like playing go-karts with your friends. Eddie Irvine said the confines created by the oval around the outside and the golf course that was on site limited the ability to create a more interesting layout. And Michael Schumacher said it was clearly a compromise, but he added, you can't have 17 number one circuits. Pedro de la Rosa called for the track to be lengthened to make it more interesting with some faster corners, while Jean Alessi made an interesting point. He said, The problem with the track is its name. It's one of the most famous tracks in motor racing history. So when we first came here, we were expecting so much of the circuit. It could not be designed on a blank sheet of paper. 
Mark, you've been trackside at many of the best circuits in the world. Was there anything interesting about going out for a wander around the Indianapolis road course in the form it was in in 2001? It was pretty dire. It was, um, you know, there were very undemanding corners on that infield. Um, There was one corner, turn 11, which just sort of transitioned them from the infield onto the beginning of the banking, uh, where you could see um, a lot of different car traits, car handling traits, and a lot of different driver approaches. And um, Hakkinen was absolutely fantastic through there, actually. He was was the only one that was using the traction control aggressively in that he was pitching the car in very, very fast and standing very aggressively on the gas and just he had the car about to try to spin with the traction control end kicking in and holding it in that stance and he he sort of four-wheel drift through that whole section and you know if the traction control hadn't been on it would have just been a spin he was he was that aggressive with the with the with the throttle and he was he was doing that pretty much every time and he was the only one doing that so there were places that you could go and still see differences in cars and differences in drivers but it wasn't a it wasn't a great place to 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 watch really. It wasn't a great place to the um, to 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 really get it on a visceral level. Why Formula One was so special? It sort of was dwarfed by it a little bit. Yeah, and the tracks had so many changes since F one stopped going there. MotoGP raced there for a bit on a revised layout. IndyCars on a a different layout now. So you look at the track now, and very few of the corners F one raced on are still used in the same way. Uh, today and I'm not sure they've made it that much better they've just sped it up a bit but F1 arriving on hallowed IndyCar racing turf inevitably led to lots of comparisons and talk of the crossover between the world's top two forms of single-seater racing F1 had two Indy 500 winners on the grid in Villeneuve and Montoya and Schumacher and Hakkinen two of F1's biggest names of the time were both asked if they'd be interested in doing the famous race one day at Indy. To put it bluntly, they both said absolutely not. Uh, Schumacher said, I have never really looked into it and thought about it because I simply don't see a point in it. First of all, I feel it is too dangerous and I feel Formula One is the highest challenge you can have in motor racing. So I don't see a point to prove anything in an Indy race. Hakkinen added, no, 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 definitely not. Uh, He said, I personally do not find that the word too dangerous isn't probably exactly the right one, but it's a bit too much. That was me quoting Mika uh, verbatim there. Jean Alessi was more interested, saying that racing in Indy 500 was a wish he hoped to fulfil one day. So it's a shame that when he finally did it in 2012, it was with that terrible Lotus project and he had to park the car after nine laps because it was so bad. But Ed, let's stick with... um, Schumacher and Hakkinen, do you think that the top names in F1 should have been a bit more open to the Indy 500 like we've seen from Fernando Alonso in recent years? Well, there's a few things going on here. Sometimes it's not necessarily a case of being more open because it's just impractical in a lot of cases. Alonso could do it that first year in 2017 because of McLaren's odd situation with Honda. He missed Monaco to do it because he had the leverage over McLaren uh, to do that. We've seen F1 drivers who've ruled out oval racing categorically, then go on to do it. Roman Grosjean more recently, I know initially he did the road course only, then he took on the ovals. Rubens Barrichello always said he wouldn't race on the ovals. And then, of course, he did. And he said when he was asked about that, well, it wasn't really a possibility back then. But then once it became a possibility after F1, I changed my mind. So there's an element of that. And there's also the practicality. Obviously, even with a reduced month of May these days, it's still 
two weekends, well, two weeks, basically, it takes up, plus any extra auxiliary preparation and you, you might do a, a, a test or whatever before that. So it's not that practical to do. But even going back 20 years, calendar was less intense, but it was still taking up the month of May. I think May the 7th in 2001 was the first day of practice for Indy. So you couldn't really do it at the same time. Obviously, people like Schumacher and Hacken, and there were windows where they could have pursued doing the Indy 500 after F1. Certainly, in Schumacher's first F1 retirement, there'd been the opportunity to. Hacken and showed little interest in it. So they seemed quite dismissive of it. I think Hacken obviously alluded to the safety elements. Schumacher, from his quotes, I don't think ever really grasped the Indy 500 especially seeing as he referred to it as an indie race, which is like, well, it's it's there's the indie race and then there's all the other ones. And I can see also why at this specific point it would have appealed less because, remember, this was in the car IRL schism. Indy 500 was picking up, but it still wasn't recovered. And if anyone who doesn't follow that form of racing that closely has a look back at the 2001 Indy 500 field, there'll be a lot of unfamiliar names and, and teams in that among some of the more familiar ones. So I think this was also at a point where the Indy 500 was at not quite its least appealing, but it was just pulling out of the trough in the second half of the, the 1990s. But as a general thing, I'd love to see more F1 drivers being able to take on Indy. It's just not very practical. It's also highly specialised so it's difficult and I think actually quite a few of the drivers in F1 would like to do it if it was realistic but when something's just not realistic you don't go for it and then often it'll be when they're older and maybe they think do you know what the safety is a little bit of a (laughs) of a concern so it's it's a nice dream but it is great when when a big name F1 driver goes to India and I'm sure it'll happen again in the future. Yeah fingers crossed This was Montoya's return to Indianapolis, having won the 500 the year before as a rookie. So there was huge attention on him in the US, and he was very good at comparing F1 and American racing. He said he felt the main difference was that in kart, even if the car is not perfect, you can over-push it a little bit on the slick tyres and get a really good lap out of it. Whereas he felt in F1, the setup was more important, especially as the groove tyres made it harder to drive around any handling problems. He also said the atmosphere was a lot more tense in the F1 paddock, so he had to be stronger mentally because it wasn't as friendly as he'd found the paddocks to be in the US. Montoya said, in kart, everybody talks to everybody. Everybody is friendly. Here, you're by yourself and you've got to work with the people around you. You don't speak to anybody else. Mark, do you think Montoya's personality and his style in the car was perhaps better suited to American racing? I felt that... In his description there, he was suggesting that everything was a bit more finessed in F1 and you can't just go out there and drag a lap time out of a car. Yeah, I think there's a lot in that. Um, I think um, Montoya's boredom threshold was quite low and um, (laughs) he's not necessarily one to apply himself to the the, the finer points of, you know, finessing the last little bit of lap time. He was... um, like Alessi we talked about earlier, fantastically naturally gifted. And I think actually those early Williamses that he was in, the 2001 and two Williamses, were actually probably about the closest an F1 car could be to suiting him because they were, you did have to grab them by the scruff of the neck. They were a bit overpowered, they had aero limitations, and you did really have to get a drag a lap time from them a lot of the time. And um, he was spectacularly good at doing that. But yeah, I think we we saw a little bit of it when he when he, he when the 2003 Williams improved, um, and it was Ralph who actually went with it, and Juan Pablo was a little bit left behind, and we saw it again. And he's half season the McLaren, and I think that's 
I think he recognised the, um, the 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 signs as well as anybody else, and uh, got out of it before too much longer. So yes, I do think um, finesse wasn't really what he was about. It was all, all about with Montoya was all all about you know, wrestling the the car and with this fantastic uh, raw car control that he had. A very exciting performer, but not necessarily a perfect fit for F1. Twenty years ago in F1, there were official press conferences on the race weekends that would feature a mix of drivers and team bosses. And at Indy in 2001, that gave us the fascinating spectacle of Michael Schumacher having an argument with his former team boss at Benetton, Flavio Briatore. This was over the failed attempts led by Schumacher to get all the drivers to agree not to race each other through the first two chicanes at Monza at the Italian Grand Prix. We'll cover all this properly when we do an episode on that race, but we'll pick up this element as a follow-up because it happened at Indy. Schumacher said in the press conference that he felt all the drivers, except one, behaved very good. And by this point, it was no secret that that one was Jacques Villeneuve. But he then took aim at Briatore, who it was believed had told the Benetton drivers, Giancarlo Fisichella and Jensen Button, that they could not agree to the deal either. Schumacher said, and this is in front of Flavio, remember, I don't agree with what Flavio has done to his drivers or some other team principals to basically tell the drivers what to do. I guess Flavio has never sat in a racing car. He doesn't know what it feels like and therefore it's a little bit inappropriate to tell the drivers what to do. But that's his decision. What is obviously not so good is that if you use the weakness of some drivers and simply tell them what to do and you know they can't do anything against that. Briatore said he wasn't the only team boss to step in and he said the approach of the drivers was wrong because they should have discussed it on the Thursday before the race, not just an hour before the start. He also said that Fissi Keller told him, I want to start normally, but Schumacher decided for everybody. Briatore said not all the drivers were with Michael, which prompted Schumacher to interject to say, I didn't know you were there. And Flavio said his information was coming from Fissi Keller. Briatore said Schumacher was trying to be a driver and a team boss, whereas Flavio was focused only on being a team boss. This is this is absolutely brilliant. Uh, Ed, can you imagine seeing something like this play out so publicly in F1 today? Should we bring back team boss and driver combined press conferences? I think we absolutely should like this kind of uh, knockabout stuff. You can see it happening, but it would happen not in quite such real time. It would be done in separate interviews, so you'll you'll get it playing out over a period of a couple of days in a Grand Prix weekend. But yeah, not quite so much when they're both in the in the same place. But it's a standard sort of F one argument, really, and it also reflects how charged that Monza weekend had, had been, which is partly because of what we said before about nine eleven, and obviously what happened the previous year at Monza with the, the Marshall, Palagas and Bertie being killed, which is what partly what contributed to this desire not to have overtaking. But um, yeah, it's it's an extraordinary thing because sometimes they just can't help themselves. If there's an argument to be had, at least if, if, the, if the opponent in the argument isn't right there, sometimes they can restrain themselves. Some people are better than others in modern F1 at restraining themselves. But um, when it's there and the argument's being confronted... It, uh, right there in front of you. It's sometimes quite hard not to respond. You sometimes see this kind of in the team principals te- uh, press conferences they do today, but it's just standard knockabout F1 stuff really, isn't it? Yeah, I, I love the idea of Christian Horner having arguments with drivers as well as fellow team bosses. Uh, Mark, were you were you in this press conference? Did you witness this exchange? 
Yes, and um, I think there's no particular um, chemistry between Flavio and Michael, despite their um, success together in the past. And um, yeah, I think Michael's chemistry in that team was always with Ross and the mechanics and the other engineers rather than with Flavio. Let's get on to the track action then, because it was Schumacher who took pole from a seemingly rejuvenated Hakkinen with the Williams drivers and Barrichello behind. There were some top performances further down the order that are worth a shout out. Nick Heidfeld put his Sauber sixth, which was ahead of David Coulthard's McLaren and ahead of DC's future teammate Kimi Raikkonen, who was in the second Sauber and was down in 11th just after he'd been picked ahead of Heidfeld to drive for McLaren. Jensen Button got his first top 10 start of the year in the difficult Benetton that was much improved by this point of the season. And as we mentioned earlier, Fernando Alonso put his Minardi 17th out of 22 cars qualifying Unfortunately, ahead of the BAR of Jacques Villeneuve, let's move on uh, because we've done an episode on Alonso's 2001 with Ed and Mark. So um, let's leave Fernando on the sidelines and we'll talk about a rare high spot for Button that year. Button said in his book that there were points in 2001 where he thought he'd never pull out of the slump he'd fallen into. But he finished the year with back to back top 10 starts and top 10 finishes. At Indianapolis, he said, I haven't just decided that I'm going to go quicker and start to push harder. I have worked hard all year and pushed hard. I've improved a lot also mechanically with the car. It's been frustrating, but if you get down, it doesn't help at all. So much in F1 is if you have the right mental attitude. It's huge, more than I ever thought. I realised that my inexperience really did show this year. When you get into a car that does not suit you, it's very difficult to work with when you are inexperienced. Mark, this might sound like a bit of a cliche, but do you think Button perhaps benefited at all from his second year in F1 being so tough? I think he would have learned the lessons regardless. I think um, if the car had been a bit more competitive, um, I think you're still you're still taking on how to get the best of everything around you. Um, and yeah, I'm sure being in, thrown effectively into a crisis with that car um, accelerated his learning a little bit. But um, yeah, he would have had to have made those lessons regardless. Um, he came in in the first year, made a great impression. Um, and But even in the first year, there were dips as well as peaks. But because he was a rookie, everybody notices the peaks and sort of forgives the dips. But yeah, when you when you get put into a really bad car with a pretty quick teammate, a very experienced teammate, suddenly you're looking at a crisis. And um, yeah, I think he had to book his ideas up, and and he did, in fairness, and he was um, much more convincing the following season. Now I mentioned earlier that Hakkinen uh, was on the front row with Schumacher, but he didn't end up starting there. This was because he was knocked back to fourth on the grid uh, when his fastest time was deleted after he drove past a red light at the pit exit during the Sunday morning warm-up. Now, Ed recently spoke to Mika about this, so first, let's hear what Mika remembers about the incident. It was, it was quite a silly thing what happened, you know, because all the cars were lined up in the end of the, end of the pit lane, and, and the lights of the, the, the exit lights for the pit lane, there was only light on the left-hand side, and it was really low. So I was not able to see when I was going on the right-hand side. I was not able to see if the lights are red or, or green. 
At the time, McLaren boss Ron Dennis said the punishment of losing two places on the grid didn't fit the crime. Teammate Coulthard said the officials didn't show any common sense. And after the race, even Schumacher said Hakkinen's victory meant justice had taken place after the penalty he was given. So, Ed, I mentioned there that you spoke to Mika about this. Can you make a case for this penalty being fair enough? And if not, what would have been a fair penalty? Mika said in 2015 on the McLaren website when he reflected on this, it should have been a fine and a reprimand. Is that about right? Yeah, you can make a case either way, really. Ultimately, it was an infringement, wasn't it? And I do wonder if the fact it was in the USA that did tend to be a bit ahead of F1 in terms of the certain aspects of circuit safety, particularly when it comes to closed circuits and neutralised tracks and that kind of thing and safety of track workers, uh, etc., so, yeah, perhaps they went a little bit harder on him. And at this time, the penalties tended to be a little bit more ad hoc in terms of how they were how they were issued. So I get why he was annoyed uh, about it. And it should be said, Hacken didn't endanger anyone in, in doing this. He just drove out five, five or so seconds early and, and got on with it. But although it is reasonable to be upset by the penalty, the simple way to avoid getting a penalty you think is unfair is don't commit the offence and if you watch the footage it is quite odd because yeah Mick is absolutely right the light was over on the left side and hard to see but that's because there were two ranks of cars there were uh, four cars already parked there and another I think a Minardi was just parking up as well so he was going past them I think he must have thought all of them were waiting to do practice starts or or something so I think there was probably part of him that probably needed to say oh maybe I shouldn't be going yet and certainly the team should have been watching out for that as well. So the easy thing to do is not accidentally jump the red traffic lights. We've seen a few drivers come a cropper at uh, at pit lane exits (laughs) in the past. So it's one of those sort of low stakes... High risk, high risk periods of a weekend where just a moment of inattentiveness can really catch you out. Yeah, maybe one of the quirks of the wide two lane indie pit lane as well. Uh, Let's Move on to the race then. From fifth on the grid, Rubens Barrichello charged into an early lead, helped by a teammate Schumacher letting him through in the early laps. This was because Rubens was fueled light for a two-stop strategy, and after he came into the pits, Schumacher and Montoya took up the battle at the front. Montoya took the lead with a classic late-breaking dive on Schumacher into the first corner, not for the first time in 2001, of course. So before we talk about it, Let's hear how Murray Walker and Martin Brundle commentated on that move. Well, he's just about in the zone for a toe, and you'll see Montoya just gradually moving towards the back of that Ferrari as they move towards the first corner. He had a lot of work to do, but look how much he's made up, and he takes oh, the lead. Fantastic! And the crowd roars! They love that! Boy, is this Grand Prix Nice to hear Murray's voice there in what was his final race before retirement. And we will come back to that subject later. Montoya didn't say much about this move afterwards, just saying passing Schumacher was good fun. I guess it was it was old hat for him by this point. Schumacher said he was struggling for tyre life by that stage. And he also said, I don't really know where he came from because he was a long way behind when I left turn 11. Then I saw in my mirrors that he was right with me. And there's there's a great aerial shot of this move. And yeah, when they come on, onto the banking, 
Montoya looks like he's way too far back and he just makes up so much ground. Ed, I feel like this move doesn't get talked about as much as, say, Brazil 2001, Montoya versus Schumacher. How good was this one? Yeah, it was a, it was a really good move. I think it's ignored because in the wider scheme of things it didn't really have a place so much in the narrative of the race it wasn't like he then retired because Jos Verstappen crashed into him as it happened (laughs) earlier in the season but it it was a great one as Schumacher alluded to in, in that quote he was slightly taken by surprise by Montoya being able to attack and yes he needed the engine power to be in the position to attack he needed Schumacher to be struggling a bit with the tires towards the end of that stint in order to do it but it was a move that was completed in the braking zone. He, he pulls out to make the attack really quite late. It's just that great moment as well where he just grabs the inside inside front wheel, bit of a puff of smoke, the kind of moves you don't see so often now because obviously the, the modern Pirelli tyres don't take kindly to being uh, locked up. And he went a tiny bit deep in that in that S, but not particularly. He, he made the apex, so he had Schumacher covered. So yeah, it was a it was a really nice move. And it's one that if the race had panned out differently, I imagine would be talked about a lot more because usually the things that make the great overtaking maneuvers partly tend to be the wider story of the race and just the way it panned out didn't quite lend to it that particular uh, tale but yeah it just showed what Montoya was bringing to F1 at this point a great move based on attacking spirit and great feel being able to get the car squeezed into the corner while really pushing it on the brakes deal with that lock up really well executed. Well, let's, let's get into what you hinted at there, that in the end, this had no bearing on the race, really. It wasn't long after this pass that Montoya pitted for what I'm assuming was going to be his only stop of the race. But we never got to find out how his race would have played out because just after his stop, he retired with a hydraulics problem. Montoya said the car just died and he believed he was looking good for a second F1 victory in just two weeks coming after his first win at Monza. And Schumacher said he wasn't sure he'd have been able to get back ahead of the Williams if it had made it to the end. So Mark, you were analysing the race at the time, so we'll defer to you on this one. Montoya was 12 seconds ahead of eventual winner Hakkinen just before he pitted for the first time. If that's worth anything, you might be about to tell me it isn't. Do you think he was on course to win if the car kept going? Um, no, he wasn't. If you look at the just the numbers, um, you, you might make a case for it, but it's to, that fails to take into account a very particular trait of the Michelins that year, Michelin in their first year of Formula One, and that they went through a graining phase of about 10 laps, and it was really quite severe, that this graining phase, and you, 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 would, you, you had to just nurse the car, otherwise the rears would just blister or the fronts would grain away. Um, and when you looked at Montoya's early, say the first 10 laps of his first stint, you could you can see quite clearly how much he was having to nurse it. And you then transpose that onto what he would have had to do in his fresh tyres um, subsequently. And you add that to how much time he lost in the extra 11 laps that Mika ran after Montoya stopped. And that's where Mika really won the race in those, those extra laps because that's when he was really pressing on and taking a load of time out of him. Um, Montoya would have rejoined about three to four seconds behind Hakkinen, but would then have had to spend 10 laps nursing the tyres. He might just have got the tyres singing enough by the end that he may have been able to challenge Barrichello for second if Barrichello hadn't retired by this time. Um, but I, no, I don't see any way it would have been a threat to Hakkinen. It was it was all done in that bit, bit in between 
Montoya stop and Hakkinen stop. That's where Hakkinen did the real damage. And then there was some more damage to come that we didn't see that because of the mechanical retirement. So no, he wasn't going to win it. Brilliant. I love that. That's exactly that's exactly what I want to do here. Challenge challenge what looks like an obvious theory and uh, and back it up with real analysis. Um, and there was a, also there's a, a very good reason why Montoya's stop was so much earlier than Hakkinen's. It was because um, they couldn't take full advantage of the big fuel tank capacity that they had. Both the McLaren and the Williams had a much bigger fuel tank capacity than the Ferrari, which sometimes restricted Ferrari in their strategies. But they couldn't, Williams couldn't take advantage of it here because it destroyed the Michelins, it destroyed the Michelin's rear tyres if they put that much fuel in it. And the McLaren was on the Bridgestones and was able to take full advantage of its big tank. Oh, excellent. Once Montoya's out the way, the race developed into a battle between Hakkinen and the two Ferraris. Schumacher and Hakkinen uh, were one stopping, although as Mark hinted at there, uh, the McLaren went much longer before making that one and only stop. Schumacher would come in a bit before that. Schumacher was unhappy with his tyres in this race. He and Ross Braun said they'd chosen the harder Bridgestone, assuming the soft wouldn't have the longevity needed for a one-stop, but Hakkinen used the soft and it was absolutely fine. So it appeared to be boiling down to Hakkinen versus the two-stopping Barrichello, who would have to hunt him down after his second stop to try to reclaim the lead. Hakkinen said he wasn't sure he'd be able to hold the charging Ferrari off, but a handful of laps from the end, Barrichello felt his engine start to lose power and then it failed completely two laps from the end. Barrichello said it felt horrible to lose the chance to claim his first win of the season, especially as Ferrari was putting all of its effort into helping him try to get second in the championship, even giving him priority access to the spare car for the first time. And we mentioned earlier that Schumacher had let him through early in the race. Team boss John Todd said afterwards that Schumacher probably wouldn't have done that under normal circumstances. So, Mark, we've talked about what Mika did and you've uh, you've explained the Montoya strategy for us. What about Ferrari's approach? Do you think the aggressive two-stop for Barrichello could have defeated Hakkinen without the engine problems that developed, I think, a few laps before it finally blew up? Yeah, it might have done. It was looked in hindsight as if two-stopping was probably the way to go. Um, and yeah, it, it looked, he, he certainly would have been pushing Hakkinen very, very hard at the end, um, which, you know, given uh, that he'd had an extra stop to make, suggests it was nip and tuck as, as good a strategy. Um, it required, as you said, it required Michael's cooperation to make, Rubens' two-stop work and he, he moved aside from it at the appropriate time and then he did back off, which compromised his, his own chances of victory, actually. Um, so it was clear within the team there was very much a coordinated strategy to try and get Barrichello that second place. Even even Michael seemed to be in on it. So Hakkinen claimed the final win of his F1 career in uh, what turned out was, of course, his penultimate start. Ed, you also asked Mika about the win as well as the penalty when you spoke to him recently. So let's get Mika's recollection of his final Grand Prix win. I had a couple of Grand Prix, but I, I always wanted to win. And in my last year, I won the Silverstone Grand Prix. I won the Indianapolis. Yeah, it, it was incredible weekend. It was incredible weekend. Uh, uh, but but I was able to have a I was able to get a really good start and able to get a good tactic for the race with the team. You need also a little bit luck, of course. You know, sometimes you need a little bit luck. Uh, 
but that's not everything. You're gonna rely on that for luck all the time. You know, you need to you need to focus. You need to maximize your performance in a highest level. And sometimes something happening. And that that race, particularly in Indianapolis, I got I got the victory there uh, for many reasons. Hakkinen reflected at length on this win for a piece on the McLaren website in 2015. And there he added that he'd had a feeling he was going to win the moment he drove into the circuit on the Thursday. Of the race, he said he played the long game, letting the Ferraris and the Williamses slog it out in front of him while he waited for the track to rubber up to suit his lower downforce setup. And then he would press home his advantage around his late solitary stop. He also said he views Indianapolis as his final flourish, as his final race next time out at Suzuka wasn't particularly memorable. Speaking of the Indy win, he said, I knew then in my heart of hearts that evening I had reached the end of the road. Alongside my friends in McLaren and Mercedes, we had triumphed over the old enemy, Ferrari, and that is always the best kind of victory. Ed, there was nothing on the line for Mika in this race, but did you get a sense from talking to him that this was still a special one for him. Yeah, definitely. And I think for him, there was something on the line because he was almost dotting the I's and crossing the T's of his F1 career by getting that Silverstone and the Indy win. And I think he did want to have that that late season win just to sort of say, yeah, I can go out, something approaching on top. And it's like he'd almost channeled his energy into this one. And even that penalty that, that cost him a couple of places on the grid didn't seem to deter him. So it was a very well-executed victory as well. So yeah, it, the way he talked about it, it's very warmly. You can tell with drivers when sometimes there's races they don't remember so much and it's not always the races you'd expect but this one clearly is an important moment for Hakkinen in, in, in his in his career and and he I think if he if he hadn't done that then he wouldn't have had a win in sort of the second half of the season the previous one was was Silverstone I think he'd have gone out of F1 on a little bit of a low but winning the penultimate race not quite going out on top because there was one more but it was it was close enough and completed his career I think quite nicely the stories from this race weren't over there on the Sunday night. Post-race, Jano Trulli's Jordan was excluded from fourth place for the skid block under his car being worn away by 1.5 millimetres too much in one area of the floor. The FIA technical report said this wear was almost certainly down to the loss of two fasteners under the car and Jordan felt this gave them grounds for appeal. But that ended up not really being the story here. Eddie Jordan says in his book that while preparing the appeal... He received an anonymous tip-off to check the signatures of the three stewards because it turned out only two had been present when team manager Trevor Foster had been summoned at the circuit. Jordan then prepared a case, including a forensic handwriting expert who was going to explore how a third signature had made it onto an FIA bulletin when only two stewards were present, but it never got to that. At the hearing, the FIA General Secretary immediately declared Jordan did not get a proper hearing at Indianapolis because only two stewards were in attendance. Eddie added, We never did find out how a signature purporting to be that of the third steward had found its way onto the bulletin, particularly since he had been on a plane back to Canada at the time. The FIA's official verdict after the hearing made no mention of the third signature, but it simply said that Jordan's appeal was successful on the grounds that a steward was absent during the hearing of the team at the United States Grand Prix. 
Mark, I, I don't know how aware of this or how much you followed this at the time. Was there a bigger story here that we never quite got to the bottom of? And for all of our current F1 fans who maybe don't remember this time, does this just show that some things never change when it comes to the sort of mishaps the FIA is capable of? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it wasn't it wasn't made a big thing of at the time. Um, it would have been it today. It would absolutely have been today. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, remarkable. <laughs> you can see why the FIA quickly put a blanket on and said, uh, uh, hang on, hang on. No, there wasn't a problem. And uh, yeah, he didn't get a fair, fair hearing. You can absolutely see why. <laughs> I was just wondering if that happened right now, what would be the hashtag that would be doing the rounds on Twitter about that one that would keep cropping up for years as, as people come back to it? But it it's a, it's an enduring problem for F1. This was clearly a procedural error. I presume the steward had to go and happily went along with what was decided but it's it's a an element of amateurism in the technical sense not rather than critical of the the approach of the stewards that runs through the way formula 1 is is stewarded and to this day it infuriates me that this is not made fully professional and properly properly done because all other top line sports have done done that and i think nowadays you wouldn't have such an obvious procedural error but it's just shows that this has been such a recurring theme throughout F1 history and will continue to be until they do something about it. So basically what you're saying is the FIA has become more creative in the way that they mess up and they wouldn't do something as obvious as this. I want to know who who put the signature on the piece of paper? You know, I, I want to hear from the forensic handwriting expert and all of that. Like, did they did somebody trace it? Was did they make it up? Did he did he leave a stamp behind of his of his signature? It's, it's incredible. I just... Perhaps it was just a big X. Well, 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 that was his name. His name was X. Well, that's the, that's the thing, isn't it? The idea is when people couldn't write and they had to make their mark and they, if they couldn't do a signature, they just did a big X <laughs> to mark it. So I was just wondering if that was the high quality forgery. I, I feel we may never know. Uh, so let's finish the episode talking about one of the icons of F1's V10 era, the one and only Murray Walker. This was Murray's final race as a full-time F1 commentator on TV, bringing an end to an illustrious career. He did, of course, pro- uh, crop up occasionally um, in some five live sessions at the British Grand Prix and uh, famously did the full 2007 uh, European Grand Prix, I think it must have been, or German Grand Prix, I don't know, at the Nürburgring. That was on five live and I listened to that live because I had to hear Murray commentate one more time. But if you're wondering why Murray signed off at the penultimate race of the year, which we did get some questions about, that was quite a late decision, which was taken after he'd been called up for the Hungarian Grand Prix that he was set to miss earlier in the year. And he was called up because it looked likely that Michael Schumacher would win the title that day. And Michael, of course, did. The decision was then taken to finish with the US GP rather than the season finale in Japan so Murray could sign off with a primetime broadcast, which in his words would be a lot more satisfying than saying goodbye from Japan at 4am. Early in the weekend, Murray was ushered to a special party for him in the F1 paddock club with multiple drivers and high-profile personalities from the pit lane. Over 300 people were there and some of the drivers got up on stage with Murray to recite some of his famous lines about them. Bernie Eccleston gave him a special F1 paddock pass, usually reserved only for F1 world champions. Indianapolis boss Tony George gave him an original brick from the early days of the Speedway, which are usually only given to Indy 500 winners. Murray gave a short speech at the end where he said, 
I can't tell you how much I appreciate you all being here. You are all my friends and I have loved every second of working with you because it is a wonderful sport and you are a marvellous lot. This is an incredible and genuinely unexpected occasion for me. Believe me, I will remember this forever. Speaking about his decision to stop in 2001, he said, I want to carry on, but we all grow old and I'd rather go too early than too late. So, Ed, as you mentioned, uh, you and I were still just watching the races on TV back in this era. So we were listening to Murray week in, week out. Do you think Murray got his timing about right to achieve his goal there? Yeah, I think so. What was he, 78 at this point? Which is uh, certainly a, a grand age to be doing that sort of job with the travelling involved, etc. Still sounded pretty sharp and he was certainly somewhere near the top of his game. Most, I imagine, listening to this podcast will very much know the Murray Walker phenomenon. They'll have watched his commentary. They'll have seen how significant he was. But it's important to stress how big a, a kind of cultural figure he was in the UK as well. A massively recognisable voice and face as well. He'd turn up in all sorts of other areas. He'd turn up on sort of entertainment shows and that kind of thing as a very recognisable face and voice. There were Murray Walker F1 yearbooks available to buy, that kind of thing. He was from that era where you could be the voice of a sport, which doesn't happen now with the proliferation of sports coverage because there's so much of it, so much there. No one commentator can can do it all, really, even though obviously F1 does have uh, bespoke commentators. But he transcended F1 and he was really to audiences in certainly the UK and certain other parts of the English-speaking world, he was as big as Michael Schumacher which sounds ridiculous to say, but he really was. And that was rec- that was reflected in the way this was treated both inside and outside the paddock. And it was nice that he could go out on the right kind of notes. He almost seemed a little bit embarrassed in the commentary box. Uh, Brundle did a little thank you at the end, and then Murray sort of moves on. That It was never about Murray Walker, the commentary. It was always about Grand Prix racing and, and, and the sport. He absolutely loved motorsport. It wasn't just Formula One, but two-wheel and four-wheel motorsport, all kinds of it were very much his bag and he commentated on all sorts of other things. So I think it's nice that he was able to have this farewell. And yeah, I think it, it was it was good, as he said, that it was a prime time one rather than an early morning one that not so many people were watching because it was a, a fond farewell for many people to a very much a voice that was part and parcel of their formative years in terms of falling in love with it. He absolutely encapsulated Formula One with that amazing voice. Yeah, I think you've, you've summed it up well there, Ed. I remember uh, I had the pleasure to run into Murray a couple of times once my journalistic career uh, had begun. And I did say to him uh, once, I, I sort of, uh, I think it was over an email chain that I had with him. Where I, I sort of thanked him for being the voice of my childhood. And I think that's, That's the impact he had on a lot of people. But that seems a fitting place to bring this episode to an end. And if you want to hear more from us about Murray's fantastic career, go back through our feed and look for the tribute episode we did after he passed away, where we were also joined by the late Simon Aaron, who was very close to Murray and who we sadly lost late last year. So our thoughts are still with Simon's friends and family as well. And we're very grateful to Simon that he joined us for that episode as a special appearance. Thank you to Mark and to Ed for joining us for Indianapolis 2001. We'll hear from you both soon enough again as the series continues. Next time, we're heading back to 1993 and one of Ayrton Senna's most famous victories and his most famous opening lap, surely, when F1 made its only appearance at Donington. The Athletic.